So this morning, church, as you can see on the screen, we continue on in this series we're in together, Understanding the Gospel. And because of that, because really the the main point of this whole series that we've been in together is to truly understand the gospel, because of that, we're covering just this one verse this morning, this one verse. And the reason for that is because personally, I think that this one verse you just heard read, 1 Peter 3.18, is the best single verse in the Bible to explain what happened with Jesus, especially on the cross, and how it applies to us. I think it's the best single verse to do that. And if you're wondering, I do think it's even a little more detailed and clear than even John 3.16, which we covered a couple weeks ago. Because as for John 3.16, if you know it, you know that's definitely more invitational. It invites people to really believe the gospel, which is great. But compared to that here in this verse... We have the Apostle Peter, who remember, he knew Jesus well, he walked with Jesus, he was one of Jesus' main disciples. We have him briefly, but also pretty fully, telling us the heart of the gospel in just a few phrases. And so this is just where we're going to be this morning together, church, in 1 Peter 3.18, seeing the gospel. Which very quickly, though, leads us to our outline, though, for how we'll go through this verse. And so to get everything that's here and to truly understand the gospel from this verse, we're simply going to have three sections together this morning, three sections. And you can remember these sections by the questions of what, how, and why. What, how, and why. Meaning first, we're going to look at this verse and we're simply first going to ask, what did Christ do in history in the gospel? Which then second will lead us to ask, and how did it really work? Meaning, how was what Jesus did in history actually good news for us? Which then third, and perhaps most unique of all on this verse, will lead us to finish asking, and why really did he do it? And so it's that simple. What Jesus did, how it all worked, and why. All with the goal, once again, of each of us leaving here truly confident that because of this one verse, we understand and hopefully love this gospel. But all said, church, let's then dive in and just begin our first section together. And again, here, we're just asking, what did Jesus do in history in the gospel? And for this, though, before we even read 1 Peter 3.18 again, which we're going to do a handful of times this morning, before we do that, first, let's just all take a second and step back and think about what we're really talking about when we're discussing the gospel, the gospel. And I know we've been talking about this a lot in this series together, but I think this will be especially helpful for us to do this morning to make it really clear. And specifically, I bring this up not because the word gospel is actually here in this verse in 1 Peter 3.18. Although just so you know, Peter does use this word earlier in this book, a couple of paragraphs earlier in the end of chapter one where he says that the gospel has been proclaimed to us. And so Peter does use this word, but still, what do we specifically mean when we're talking about this issue of the gospel? Or better yet, why is what we're about to read in this verse about Jesus' death something that the New Testament takes up and uses this word gospel? And to answer that, well, let's remember, a lot of us probably know this, but the word gospel just literally means good news, right? And in the original Greek, it is the word euangelion, which is, by the way, where we get the word evangelical. And so technically, to be an evangelical just means you're a gospel person. And so gospel means good news, but still, again, the question is, but what really is this topic that we're addressing when the Bible and when we are talking about good news? about gospel. 
And it's that which I want all of us, I think it's good for all of us to just quickly consider as we begin here. Because the answer to that, most simply, church, is that when we're talking about the gospel, the good news, the Bible, and we are really talking about the answer, the solution, which we in the world are all looking for to what's wrong and what's messed up about us in our world. If you boil it down, that's, that's really it. And I know many of us here know that, which is great, but let's just take a second to realize how when we think of this whole topic of the gospel that way, we can start to notice that therefore, literally every major religion that has ever existed or every philosophy that people have come up with, and then maybe more important for most of us in here, we can think of how so many just ideas we hear in places like the news or the media or politics, we can see how they're all also in a way, attempting to solve or answer the same issue, right? The same issue of things are messed up, we're messed up, or to use the language more typical of religion, we often do wrong, and so do we do, what do we do with that, right? Or to use the language that's actually more typical of more Eastern thinking, there's a lot of suffering in this world, and so what do we do with that? Or to use the language more typical of our modern feelings-focused society, we're not always happy and fulfilled and we know things could be better. Right? And so what's the answer to that? And the point is I bring all that up because therefore when you think of this that way first, we should realize this topic that we're about to talk about this morning is not some side religious issue. But not only that, but second, we should realize that not only is this not a side religious issue, but again, there's also in a way many competing messages and answers to this same issue in our world. And now they do not use the word gospel like the Bible does, but think about it. Some religions, right, like Islam, they say that the solution to really what's wrong with us and our world is submit to and to obey Allah better. Because that's what the word Muslim just literally means. One who submits. And so that's their answer in a sense. Or think of Hinduism, which, which the goal for them, for all of us, is through many reincarnations to eventually achieve nirvana. Or consider Buddhism, which has their eightfold path, which is describing the way that you and I can better avoid and eventually escape suffering. Or think of modern naturalism, which thing, says that things are just the way they are because of you know, time and evolution and the survival of the fittest. And so their answer is kind of, well, at least we're here and therefore let's just do the best we can as humanity to figure this all out. Or think of political ideologies and politics where very often these days politics does become people's religions when it's thought that if just this person or that party or this ideology was followed, then kind of basically everything would be okay. Or finally, just consider just our modern popular culture we all live in, which just says that the answer is really to just do whatever you personally think will make you happy and of course don't harm others. They all have an answer to the same issue. But for us, I bring all that up because, and yet, as for the Christian answer, as for God's one true gospel, the good news, the center of it all really always has been what we're about to read. And it's the gospel that in history, and remember, that Peter who is writing this for us is someone who really walked with Jesus for many years. He saw him do many miracles. He, he heard him teach and who he claimed to be. The gospel, Peter says, the answer is that we actually don't solve our issue on our own. Because we can't. 
because we'll never obey enough or submit enough on our own or we'll never escape our suffering enough on our own. We won't make up for our wrongs enough on our own. We won't achieve humanistic utopia on our own. Those are not the answers. And if they were the answers, then none of them would actually be good news. Instead, the good news is that in history, the creator himself came down and became our solution. He became the answer because in what he did and in how it worked and in why he did it, he solved the deepest issue with us now and he promises to solve all the other issues we need forever. And church, just one last time, that's really the topic that we're gonna see Peter talk about here in 1 Peter 3.18. But anyway, so I know that was a long setup for this. But that all then finally leads us now to verse 18. And so again, for our first section here, we're asking what did Jesus do in history in the gospel? And so now look at your Bibles for the first time this morning. 1 Peter three eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So concerning our first question of what Jesus did, this in some ways is our simplest section together this morning. And you can see the answer to it actually in those words in the fir- all that come before the first comma, for Christ also suffered for sins. And so for us to see what's really being said there, let's just quickly break all that down. And this will be more basic, but it is important. And so first, let's just focus on that word Christ. Christ. Since Peter, as you can see, he decides to call the Jesus that he walked with and learned from and saw die and rise, he's called the Christ here on purpose. And why? Well, because I'm sure as many of us know, Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah in Hebrew or anointed one or king. And therefore, this is not actually Jesus' name technically. Instead, it's a title. And it's pointing us to the fact that in this gospel message, what happened was that in the whole Old Testament, God was starting to reveal his solution, his answer to what we need. And there he promised that a unique and special king and Messiah and Savior would come and he would provide the world's solution by what he does alone. And he did. Right? And so that's who we're talking about in this gospel. We're talking about the Christ who came, which moving on leads us next to consider the center of what this Christ did. Right? And what did he do? Well, we know that in history, this Jesus, the Christ, he lived a stunning life, Loving perfectly, doing miracles, teaching in a way that no one has ever taught before and more. And all that's true. But what is actually the most important part of what he did in history and what Peter focuses on here is that the Christ suffered. He suffered. And now that's significant, of course, because that's referencing Jesus' cross, which we're going to talk about more in our second section. But then also on this, let's not forget, church, that so many of the questions of the world's religions and philosophies have had to do with suffering. Suffering. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. And the reason for that is because, let's be honest, so much of our lives and every human's life in history has been about suffering, filled with suffering from physical suffering to mental suffering, just wishing things were different. And so I do think this word is intentional. Christ came and he suffered. Which is interesting in itself that this great Messiah and King and God with us and Savior would suffer. Which then, moving on next here, leads us to that small and actually pretty important word once though. Once. Christ suffered once. And that actually has two meanings, both of which I think are brilliantly implied here by Peter. First, think about it. Once implies that this happened in history. 
Because once is a time word, right? It's like you or me saying, I was there once. And so the point is that this isn't a fairy tale. Instead, this Messiah King once suffered in our timeline, in our world history. But then second, and importantly on this word once, the New Testament disciples use this word often because it emphasizes that Jesus really did this and he only needed to do this one time. Right? Once. And church, that, that's a huge gospel truth in itself because even some so-called Christian churches really get this wrong because sometimes it can kind of be taught that in order for Christ to continue to forgive us of our continual sins, he needs to keep on suffering. But no, the gospel is Christ suffered once in history and only one time and it was enough. Which finally on this first section leads uh, to those last words there in the first part, four sins. Four sins. And specifically, that now shows us why this king suffered. And we will talk about this more in our next section, of course. But for now, again, you just need to see very clearly that in the Bible, that's why Jesus suffered. For sins. And I know for many of us in this room, that might seem really obvious to you. But honestly, brothers and sisters, so many people don't like that and try to get around that. Because, because let's be really clear, those are our sins there that we're about to see. And so implied right there is that we're really messed up, sinful, and our messed upness leads to suffering. And not only that, but implied there is that this means Jesus' cross wasn't only some great generic display of love, nor was Jesus' cross only him suffering to show us some faithful good example of suffering. And people in the name of Christianity do wrongly teach only those things sometimes. Instead, yes, Jesus suffered faithfully and he's such an example of love. And yes, it was the greatest display of love that there had ever been. But specifically, I hope all of us in this room know the cross was such an example of suffering and faithfulness and love because Jesus suffered for sins. That's the most faithful to God, the most loving thing that he could do for us. And notice, he suffered for sins, plural. Not, meaning not just this vague thing of sin in general, but instead on the cross, Jesus was suffering for his specific sins of his people. In sacrificial love, he, he took those upon himself. That's what he did. Right? And so that's our most basic and first section of what did Jesus do in history in the gospel. And quickly though, just on those, if you're curious for those words for and also there, which we haven't covered yet, just so you know, those words in themselves do show us that Christ did suffer. It's the gospel. But Peter writes also and for there to connect us to the verses before and after this. And all you need to know there is that his point is that yes, Jesus is the answer. And yes, he forgives us and brings us back to God. But also in this life, as you and I follow him, we're still also going to suffer as well. Meaning is it just a quick but important application church. If anyone ever tells you that since Christ suffered for our sins, then in this life we shouldn't ever suffer or that we should have something like our best life right now, that's just not true. Right? And Peter knew that really well. But anyway, so again, that's what Jesus did in history on the cross. The Old Testament promised king of the universe came here. He suffered once for sins. But think about it, in some ways, and concerning the gospel, that alone doesn't answer everything. Because we should feel, okay, so the Bible says Jesus did that, but really, tell me how that's good news. Or better yet, tell me why ultimately he really did that. And again, that's what we'll be focusing on now in our second and third section. So that was our first section, leads us now to our second. And here again, 
We're now just going to be asking, and how did it work? Meaning, how was what Jesus did, which we just talked about, truly good news for us? And for this, we already know that Jesus suffered four sins, right? But Peter here gets even more detailed than that. And so now, let's look at 1 Peter 3.18 again. And as we hear this again, just see if you can further answer this question of how did it really work? So look at your Bibles again. 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So you can see in terms of how this all worked, meaning how God designed Jesus' suffering for sins to be good news, there's two answers here, two answers. First is the more straight up historical answer, and then second, there's the deeper answer to what was really going on at that cross. And so first, as for the straight up historical answer, you can see it in that last clause where Peter explains that Jesus was, quote, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And honestly, since there isn't um, capital letters in the original text back then, there's some debate over whether this is talking about Jesus being made alive in his human spirit, which would be a lowercase s, or which is Jesus being made alive by the Holy Spirit. But either way, the point from Peter is clear. Jesus was literally in history, in the flesh, put to death in his body. Jesus physically died on the cross. But then also, Peter says, who remember, Peter was a witness to this, He says, and though Jesus really was in history made alive again in his human spirit and by the Holy Spirit. So that's the historical answer to how this all works. And it's amazing that that truly happened. Jesus died on a Friday. He rose again on a Sunday about 2,000 years ago, which does prove to us that this is all true. But still, we might ask, but even deeper, what was really going on in that death and resurrection? Or, Or again, but how did it work that Jesus suffered once for sins, that he died and came back to life, and yet that's good news for me, right, for us. That, that's the real question. And on that, finally, here's where this one verse is so clear. And this is one of the main reasons why I wanted to go so through, slowly through this verse together, because on the answer to how did this really work, Peter's really clear in just a handful of words in the middle of this verse. And what he teaches is profound. And it's a concept that in theology has been called substitution. Substitution. And concerning the gospel, the one true gospel of the universe, this really is at the heart of it. And so we all need to know and hopefully love this. Because even if you don't use the word substitution per se, as you'll see, concerning what truly happened with Jesus and how it connects to us, this is what we need to understand and love. And so what is it? You can see it there in the middle of verse where Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And really, church, that middle line, the righteous for the unrighteous, that's how this all worked and how it still works today. That's really what was going on at the cross, and that's why this is such good news for us. And I I know many of us know this, Let's let's all just take a second to grasp that in reality, that's how God did it. That's how God did it. Meaning this is how God solved the big issue of our world and in our hearts. This is the ultimate solution. The reality of Jesus coming, living a perfect life, suffering, and specifically him being our substitute. And I I know putting it that way may sound weird, but again, in reality, this was and this still is God's answer. And really, it is the only one that works. 
It's the only one that can lead people like you and me to forgiveness, to restoration, and to peace, both now and forever. And why? Why is that? Well, because just think about this with me. Think about this with me. We all know we're messed up, right? We know things aren't right. We know things are messed up. And yet the truth is, injustice, our messed upness and sin, isn't something that can be made up for or just forgotten about or swept under the rug. And quickly, if that sounds like something you might disagree with, I actually think deep down everyone on this planet knows this. Everyone. And truthfully, this is one of our big inconsistencies in our modern way of thinking because most people in our world understandably want fairness and justice, right, in life and in society. And we all know that certain things are truly right and certain things are truly wrong. And finally, we all know that when someone is truly being cruel or unjust or wrong to us, that's a big issue. Everyone knows that. But then at the same time, when it comes to God, for some reason, we all kind of naturally just tend to think, well, of course, he's going to forgive me with no justice at all. Meaning, of course, God can do whatever he wants and just sweep my sins under the rug and pretend like it's nothing. And yet, all the while, again, when real injustice occurs in our world or to us, we definitely take it seriously and understandably yearn for justice. But anyway, so the point is, so we all know, real sins in reality can't just be forgotten about, swept under the rug. Real wrongs are an issue. And so the question is, well, what happens with those? And really, again, that's the basic topic we're talking about. Things aren't right. We aren't right. Things are messed up. We have sins, as the Bible calls them. And so what's the solution? And again, just so we really all get this, again, other religions will say, well, from here on out, Obey the best you can. Be good. Or more Eastern religions will say, well, from here on out, here's a way to avoid suffering and escape suffering the best you can. Or finally, our culture will say, well, from here on out, we'll just do the best we can as humans. Put your trust in the future of humanity. But all those don't solve the issue. They don't work. We keep messing up. They failed us over and over and over. And so what's the answer? Well, church, the answer really is God coming in and doing something. It's God's grace, God's forgiveness. It's God somehow removing the penalty of those sins from us now and one day removing the presence of sin from this world forever. But still, how can he do that? Well, again, the answer is substitution. Substitution. Or to say it using yet less technical and maybe school-sounding language, the answer is Jesus took our place. Jesus died for our sins, as that's really what the word for means when we say that. Or finally, the answer is, as Peter says here, the righteous died for the unrighteous. He's righteous, we're unrighteous. Meaning there was someone who came into this world who never did anything wrong. He actually never contributed to the suffering of this world through sin, like everyone in this room has. He was truly righteous. He was the pinnacle of love and goodness. But then in that same love, and importantly, in God's plan and in God's way of doing things, it was always the plan that that righteous one, in love and in justice, would take upon himself the specific sins of his people. He'd suffer for those sins. He'd even die for those sins. He'd do it in his people's place, in our place, and he'd suffer for them in full which means amazingly that for anyone who trusts him, 
We are truly now forgiven and absolved of those sins, which means that the root issue of what's wrong with us has been dealt with. And so we we are back on God's side, loved, secure, and with a future way brighter than we can even imagine, all because Jesus suffered for sins in our very place. And church, really, one last time, that's the center of the gospel. It's the central reality of the cross. And again, the theological term has been substitution, or even more specifically, because this might be helpful, this has been called penal substitution. Penal substitution. Because the point is, if if you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, you can see clearly that in the Old Testament, God was always hinting at this, right? With weird things like that big sacrificial system. And then the New Testament, it's made crystal clear with Jesus and what's said about him. In the end, what we see is that in God's plan for the restoration and salvation and rescue of all of humanity, anyone in humanity can get on this, something penal took place. Meaning Jesus took upon himself the right penalty that his people deserve. And how? Well, one last time, by substitution. Hence, penal substitution. Meaning Jesus took the penalty of our sins in our place. And because of that, we totally go free. That's the gospel. And honestly, let me just say, that's God's love as well. And we know that because John, who's another disciple and apostle like Peter here, he writes this in 1 John 4.10. And just listen to this. John writes this. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, meaning the punishment-bearing, atoning sacrifice. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so John is the one who writes two verses before that, God is love, and then amazingly, he defines God's love as this, as Jesus coming and taking our sins in our place. That's the definition of love. And now one last thing quickly on this section, because you may know that, but you still might be sitting there and thinking and asking questions like, but really, how could that work? How could God do that with Jesus taking my place? Can he really do that? And and, And to be honest, if we had more time, we could dive further into answering that because in short, the answer is yes, God can do that. But also for this morning, let me just say, concerning Jesus taking our place like that in the gospel, meaning concerning Jesus in history actually being able to be our substitute who rescues us now and forever, let me say, honestly, you and I can get caught up sometimes in our own thinking and our own questions. And we can and should ask questions, but on something like this church, since it is so clear in the Old Testament, especially in the New Testament, I do think, sure, we can and should ask questions, but above all, let's just each make sure we step back and realize this is so clearly God's way and God's plan, and therefore, above all, let's just make sure we each accept it. Accept it. Because in short, that's what we mean by faith. That's what it means to be a Christian. We can and should ask any questions we want. We won't always have the answers to our questions. But what we do know is that this is how it worked and how it still works. Jesus Christ came in history and he took the sins of his people upon himself. On the cross, all of my sins were there. If you trust in Jesus, all of your sins in there. And so in justice and in love, they are totally gone. The penalty you and I deserve has been paid. The deepest issue in you is resolved. And again, that finally means as we're about to see that you're on God's side right now and your future is better than you can even fathom.
And so those are the first two sections, asking what Jesus did, how it worked, which finally leads us to our third and last question where we're going to ask, and why? And why? And for this, the answer, this answer here is the simplest to understand word-wise, I think, in this verse, but it's really put beautifully and helpfully as well. And, and quickly, though, before we even read the verse one last time this morning, just quickly, so think about everything we've, we've said this morning, right? A lot of this has been basic gospel. We've seen that sin is how we can describe our deepest issue, the world's deepest problem, and we know that Jesus Christ in history, he came and died and rose, and he did so for sins, and specifically, we saw he did so in our place for our forgiveness, and truth be told, though, that is often how we stop on the gospel, and therefore, think about it. In terms of how we usually answer the question of why all this happened, we sometimes just think or say, well, mainly to be forgiven, of course. But that said, church, the reason why this verse is so helpful is because the last big thing I hope each one of us leaves here with after all this, understanding the gospel more, is that yes, we are each forgiven if we trust in Jesus. Amen. And yet very clearly in the Bible, forgiveness is not the ultimate answer to the why of the gospel. It isn't at all. Because think of it this way. We were each created and designed for more than just to be forgiven. <laughs> right, and honestly, if you've ever, if you're here and you've ever heard the gospel before and you've kind of thought, okay, sure, I need to be forgiven and I want to be forgiven, that's great, but there's got to be more. If you've ever felt that, then you'd actually be totally in line with how the Bible talks because forgiveness is incredible. It's what we need, but it's not the end goal. It's only a means, and a means to what? Well, for our last time this morning, look at 1 Peter 3.18. As a quick antidote, personally, this part of 1 Peter 3.18 had a huge impact on me early in my life when I was really starting to love Jesus more deeply because it just made so much sense. And so I hope it might have that impact for some of you this morning as well. So anyways, why the gospel? What's the ultimate reason? Notice it in 1 Peter 3.18 one last time. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So you can see as clear as day, why did Jesus do what he did for us? Why is this actually good news for us? Well, Jesus did it, quote, that he might bring us to God. That's it. Truly, church, in God's word, from God himself, that's the ultimate reason for the gospel. And that's why this is the best news. And now on that, let's be honest, that may sound like something where, sure, <laughs> you're sitting there and you know you can't disagree with that. And yet, if you were truthful, some of us might admit that it kind of just comes off as some nice-sounding religious truth. And so we kind of do need to ask, is that really the best news, the best thing for us, that we can be brought back to God? Is that the best it gets? And brothers and sisters, in reality, in our universe, in our lives, the answer to that, I hope you know, is a resounding yes. <laughs> it's yes. And personally, that's what struck me so, so much earlier in my life. And that's what I, may, I hope may impact all of us this morning a little bit. Because in reality, to be reconciled and to be brought back to God is the best thing that can happen to you and me by far. And the reason for this is because, just consider, so the Bible is clear. 
all goodness and love and things we enjoy are originally created by and founded in God. And everything we love in this universe originated in our creator God. And everything we love about other people actually even originated in God as we're all made in God's image. And not only that, but the Bible says every good and perfect gift we enjoy comes down from God. And so all that's true about how everything we really love is actually reflecting of God and his infinite goodness. But then there's even more than that. Then we can see things like how we, we, we all know we were clearly made for something bigger than us and just ourselves. Or we can see how there's this deep longing in our hearts because we were designed by our designer to know him. Or we can see how it seems to be true that we can't find any source of lasting peace and joy. And so it seems that peace and joy and security are going to be found in God. Right? And more could be said, but you're probably getting the point. Because the point is, that all being true, therefore, the reason sin and our messed upness is such a big deal is because on our own, it separates us from God. And so forgiveness with Jesus taking our place needs to happen. Absolutely. But why? Well, because I hope you're seeing it's not so that we can just be merely forgiven people. But instead, Peter is so clear here, it all happens so that we can be brought back to God. That's why Jesus did what he did. Or again, just if this might be helpful to use another somewhat theological term for this as a clear Bible word, the greatest why of the gospel is reconciliation to God. It's reconciliation to God. Well, more specifically, it's reconciliation to God that brings about our adoption in God's family. Church, that's, that's as good as it gets. In the gospel, in Jesus, you and I are brought back into a right alignment and relationship with the living God and amazingly in that, God becomes our very loving Father. <laughs> or finally, to say all this, using a title of a book, actually, from one of my favorite Bible teachers and pastors, John Piper, he once titled a book, quote, God is the gospel. God is the gospel. And that might sound weird at first, but when we think about it, it's actually a lot more true than we realize. Because then, because again, the gospel, the good news, isn't just that we're forgiven. But why is being forgiven so great now and forever? Well, again, it's because with our sins forgiven by Jesus, we're totally brought back to God and everything that that entails. And so... Everyone in here, I just hope we really get this. The gospel is not just forgiveness. It is being brought back to God. Nor is the gospel just about avoiding some punishment. Because of course, yes, that is great. But if we just avoided punishment, we still wouldn't be who God designed us to be. Instead, we need to be brought back to God. Nor finally is the gospel just that we'll go to heaven one day. Because think about it, eternity and any sort of life like this would be awful and boring. <laughs> and so why is eternity going to be so great? Well, because we will finally, fully, forever be with our infinitely loving, kind, and creative God. <laughs> and so all that said, church, the point is truly, that's why Jesus did what he did. That's the good news. We are brought back to God. Let, let me just say that again. You and I, with all that we know is really wrong with us because of Jesus and because of trusting Jesus alone, we are brought back to God. <laughs> Which means we are now rescued and saved, as the Bible says, and we often say, but also, as we've been saying, one last time, it means that God is for us now more than we know, and our future is brighter than we can imagine. And so that's our verse here in 1 Peter 3.18, church. And I know, 
for many of us here, we probably knew a lot of that already. But that said, I hope this morning that we're just refreshed and remember what the gospel really is and we can apply that more regularly to our lives because the gospel is what Peter said here. This is what happened, why he, how it worked and why he did it. Jesus did this to bring us back to God. Which finally for this morning, after a message so clearly in the gospel for that, just quickly, I do think the best way to finish, to close uh, on this uh, verse from Peter is actually to be, is actually to see how Peter finishes his whole letter here in 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you can, take a second and turn with me to the very last few verses in 1 Peter. I'm going to go a couple more verses this morning. 1 Peter 5 verses 12 through 14 because this this is what Peter wants them to respond with after his whole letter, and I think it applies to our response as well. And so it should be just a page or to the right in your Bibles. First Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. We'll read these, make a couple comments, and we'll be done. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She was at Babylon who likewise chosen sends you greetings and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all you who are in Christ. And so church, there's a lot in there that we won't talk about, but just notice with me a few quick things to close that Peter talks about here because they're so true. First, as you can see, he says in verse 12, let's realize this gospel is, quote, the true grace of God. The true grace of God, meaning, think about it, this gospel and living, believing it and following Jesus because of it is the real way we experience God's grace. Because one last time this morning, we all know there are competing beliefs and worldviews that are trying to lead us away from this. The world is always trying to give us more worldviews about us and our merits. But as that happens, because it happens to all of us, let's just always remember that Jesus and his cross and the gospel of being brought back to God by Jesus being our substitute, that alone is where we truly experience God's grace. And then that being true, what are we to do? Well, as Peter says, we're to quote, stand firm in it. You see that? Stand firm in it. Meaning, yes, we are each as followers of Jesus to live our daily lives in, in many different nuanced ways, but also, church, as we do that, let's each stand firm in this one true gospel of grace. Which then finally here, as we do that, finally, let's always remember as Peter decides to end his letter with that because of the gospel and because we are now on God's side, we have true peace. We have a deep peace. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. We have a true peace, a deep shalom where we need to believe it because it's true. We're with us and God. Everything is okay now. And brother or sister in Christ, please believe it. With God on your side, everything will be okay forever. And it's all because Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that it might bring us to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.